Colossians, it was a letter written by Paul. He's in jail at the time. Uh, there's a church in Colossae. He did not plant it. It was planted by Epaphras, and one of his lieutenants, Epaphras, has brought him a report. Most things are going well. There are, there's, there's one particular thing that's not looking great. And so Paul writes this letter, and he begins by telling him all the things, things he's thankful for. We've walked through that. Then he has this section on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And then from that, he says, because of that, because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done, here's how you should live. And that's where we've been for the last six or eight weeks, uh, looking at some very practical instructions. And for Paul, it always begins with who Jesus is. And then it, our behavior is based on that. So we start with, this is who Jesus is. This is what it means to be in relationship with him. And then from that, we look for changed behavior. And we've said before, you can't... Uh, invert the order. If you go for behavior before relationship, you're going to wind up frustrated and spend your life on this performance treadmill, which is not a lot of fun. And what we're looking at this morning are really his closing words, his final instructions to this church. And there's two words that he gives. One's on prayer and one's on how uh, people relate to outsiders, people who are outside the faith, people who are outside um, of a relationship with God. And that's what we want to look at in Colossians 4, starting in verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Three words there on prayer. The first is devote, or uh, be busily engaged in, be persistent at prayer. And then he says, be watchful, be alert, be aware, and be thankful. You know um, what it means to be thankful. This is Luke 18. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So that's the reason this, he gives this story. We should always pray and that we should not give up or that we should not lose heart. In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Two things there. This idea again of, of devoting ourselves to prayer, being persistent at prayer being busily engaged with prayer. Look at it in two ways. This first thing Jesus says, the reason I'm telling you this story about this lady is so that you'll always pray. For some of us, we think, what? why? God already knows everything I need. He already knows that everything, everything that's going on. Why do I need to pray? It's not efficient. It's a waste of time. I'm not telling him anything he doesn't already know. It's a wrong understanding of prayer. Prayer is not about giving God information. It's about issuing him an invitation to get involved in our life. That's what prayer is. It's inviting God to get involved in the dailiness of your life. Not about telling him stuff that he doesn't already know down here on earth because he's off taking care of Jupiter or whatever else he does during the day. It's not at all. We're acknowledging, God, we need you. We've said before, God respects our freedom. He doesn't butt into our business. He's looking to be invited in by us. And prayer is the way that we do that. So we always pray. 
when you pray about the things that are going on in your life. I met with a guy a few months ago, and he said, my parents taught me not to pray for myself. I said, your parents taught you wrong. If you don't pray for yourself, who's praying for you? It's not selfish to ask God to get involved in your life at all. If all you pray about is yourself, then we can talk about that. But it's not holy to say, well, I never pray for myself. That's silly. You have a God, a Father in heaven. All of the resources of heaven are available to you. And you're going to leave those untouched, untapped, out of some false humility that says, I don't want to pray for myself. Or God doesn't care about this. If he doesn't care about it, that's his thing, not yours. You don't decide for him what he cares about. And you don't decide for him what he says yes and no to. Your responsibility, my responsibility, is to invite him to get involved. Everything else is up to him. How he wants to act, when he wants to act, what he wants to do, you can leave all those things to him. But don't decide for him. By saying, well, God, I guess you don't, you don't care about this, so I'm not even going to let you get involved. My mom always said, don't say no for somebody else. That's what we're doing when we don't pray about the things happening in our life. We're saying no for God. We're not giving him a chance to get involved. And so they they would not give up. So that, to me, implies that there are times when we will be tempted to give up, tempted to lose heart, or Jesus wouldn't say that. If the purpose of this parable is to encourage us to not lose heart, then Jesus recognizes that there are going to be times when we're tempted to lose heart. And those are when God doesn't seem to be doing anything. We get frustrated. He's not acting quickly enough. It's interesting to me that Jesus says he will act quickly, and we want to say, eh, who's determining quickly there? Quickly on whose watch? This is me. You don't have to agree. I think God answers prayers at the first best opportunity. But he waits until the first best opportunity to answer. We've said before, his primary agenda for all of us is to conform us more and more into the image of Jesus. That's priority number one. And everything else is farther down the list. And so when we're inviting him to get involved in our life, he's taking that as an invitation to form and shape our character. That's his primary responsibility. His primary desire is to make us as much like Jesus as possible before we die. And that takes time. Some of you are parents. You know how much time it takes to help form and shape and mature and train your children. God's doing the same thing with us. He can't do everything instantly at once. It would short-circuit us. We couldn't handle all of that. We've said before, he's shaping us. We're like pottery, and we want to be soft. That's prayer, inviting him to get involved so he can use his hands. We don't want to be resistant where then he has to use a hammer and a chisel. He's going to do the work. It's just which tools is he going to use, his hands or a hammer? Prayer is inviting him to get involved. It's saying, I need you. I need you involved. Come work in this situation and work in my heart. And again, I, I believe he answers at the first best opportunity. There are times where God will answer your prayers in a flash, snap of the finger. And that's wonderful. And grab onto those. Oftentimes, I think his work is much more gradual because what he's doing is much deeper than just answering kind of a surface level circumstantial thing that we may, we may be tossing up on our way to work. What he's doing is forming and shaping our character. Some folks would say this, for me to pray Ask the Lord to do something more than once. That's a sign of a lack of faith. There's a whole school of thought in prayer that says you ask once, and if you truly believe, then you never ask again. You don't have to ask again because you've already asked once, and if you have confidence and trust, then you don't need to ask again, and asking again indicates that you don't have faith. Wrong. Jesus says he will answer those who cry out day and night, not those those who threw it up one time. 
day and night. I think for many of us, when we choose to not really engage our heart persistently in prayer, it's a defense mechanism. We're trying to protect ourselves from being disappointed. And so we put all these qualifiers. Well, God, if it's your will, and if you want to, and if you have time, and if you can make this happen without too much trouble, then it would be really great if you fill in the blank. We have layer upon layer of disclaimers, so we're lowering the bar in our own heart. Because that way we can't be disappointed. If God does something great, surprise, surprise. If he doesn't, it doesn't matter because I never really expected him to anyway. I think this is especially true of matters that are deep in our heart. Things that we really want, but we're not sure we're going to get. For some of you, it's a spouse. For some of you, it's children. For some of you, it's a career change. It's that thing that's really, it's tender in your heart. It's the thing that you should be bringing to him. It's where you need him to get involved, but you're afraid to lay it out there. Because you don't know what he's going to do with it. It's fragile. And you're honestly, you're afraid he's going to drop it. And you're not sure you can pick up the pieces. And there's an unwillingness to lay it out there and say, God, I need you to work here. And this is what I want to see happen. Again, he gets to decide the answers. You don't have to say, if it's your will, he's already going to answer according to his will. He doesn't, our will doesn't enter into the picture for him. If it's your will. He's, of course. That's like when your kids come to you. Well, Dad, if you want to, of course I'm only going to do it if I want to. That's, that's it. I'm the dad. I get to decide. He's God. He gets to decide. You don't have to qualify. It, it, I get it. We're trying to be humble and all of that. But for many of us, what it does is it causes us to step way back. God's wanting to, us to get in there with him. Think about Jacob. He's hand-to-hand combat with an angel of God. They're wrestling at night. Or with Abraham, they're going back and forth in this bargaining session over Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not this distant, unemotional, detached negotiation. It's two people who love one another wrestling through to a solution. And that's that's kind of the picture to me of what Paul's saying. That's what it looks like. Devote yourself. And Jesus is saying... God answers prayer. The persistent, this persistence is needed and you don't need to give up. If you're someone who's pulled back, I'd ask you, are you pulling back in faith? Are you pulling back because of a lack of faith? Is it because you're unwilling to engage God on this deep heart issue? It's causing you to step back. Don't do that. You're cutting yourself off from the one that you need. And sometimes it's messy and sometimes it takes a while. There's emotional, spiritual turmoil that we go through, wondering, God, I know you're able. Are you not willing? God, are you willing? And not what, what is going on here? And all that's just part of the maturing process. And it's living in a world that's fallen with a God who sometimes we don't understand. But if you're pulling back from him, don't. You're cutting yourself off at the knees. Choose to engage. Choose to put your heart back out there again. Wrestle with him until you get an answer. If the answer is no, then the answer is no. But at least get to the point where it's a yes or it's a no. Where it's not a question mark in your own heart of what God wants to do. Being watchful, being alert, being aware of things and being thankful. And I was, what are we supposed to be watchful and thankful for? What are we supposed to be watchful for and thankful for? Watchful. God's activity in our life. And let me kind of step back and give you a picture. We talked about this a little bit last week when we were talking about employer-employee relationships and 
our jobs and how for a lot of us we create this dichotomy between our spiritual life and our work life. And because we don't like our job or it's not in a Christian organization or our work doesn't seem very spiritual, we decide that God has nothing to do with this. And we're just paying the bills over here so we can use our extra two hours a night or whatever we have for ministry or things that God cares about. And we said, no, that's not, God wants to break that wall down, fully integrated life. He wants to infuse his presence into the dailiness of your life. Again, whether you feel like it's spiritual or trivial or mundane or world-changing, none of that matters. He wants to be involved in the dailiness of our life. And I think Paul here gives us a picture. He says, devote yourself. Be busily engaged. And that, to me, has a future orientation. For some of us, maybe who've spent time in the church, we kind of have this holy grail of time with God, and it's your quiet time or your devotional time. And so we set aside 30 minutes or an hour or whatever it is in the morning, and we read a chapter of the Bible, and you read Oswald Chambers or whatever your devotional book is, and you pray through your list, and that's great. But then we kind of check mark that box, and we go on about our day. So 6 to 6.30, I'm all about Jesus. And then at 6.30, I got stuff to do. And I'm going to check in again tomorrow morning at 6. That's better than nothing, but not by a lot. So I'm going to give you a challenge for the next two weeks. You have permission from me. Don't do a quiet time. It's probably never been said from a pulpit. Don't do a quiet time for the next two weeks. You have to listen to the rest. What I want you to do is I want you to break up the time. that I want you to break up this big chunk, this 30 minutes or 45 minutes or whatever it is that you give. I want you to break it up throughout the day. I want you to scatter your time with the Lord throughout the day. So you don't have this sense of, I've already done my quiet time. I've already connected with God for the day, and now I'm off doing my own thing, and we'll reconnect tomorrow morning. Begin to see Him as desiring to be active in all that you do. So you've got a lunch meeting at tomorrow at noon. Pray, turn off the radio 30 seconds before you get there. All right, God. I'm, I'm doing this, and there's, the meeting is for this purpose. We've got to talk about this issue or work through this item or close this deal. Whatever it is, this is, that's what's on the surface. God, what do you want to do here? Whether the person's a Christian or not, God, what do you want to do here? I want to be open to what you're saying as I move in to this lunch meeting. 30 seconds. You don't have to be super spiritual. Just ask him to get involved in what you're about to do. Whatever that is. Play group meetings, appointments, coaching, all the different things that you have going on. Ask him to get involved. Next two weeks, do that. If that means you need to trade your quiet time, then trade it. But and Begin to intentionally cultivate an attitude that says, God wants to use me. God is active in my life. Then he says, be watchful. That to me has a present orientation. This idea of being devoted to prayer has a future orientation. Being watchful has a present orientation. I need to be aware that God is at work. I need eyes to see what he's doing. For some of us, again, it's we've checked God off from 6 to 6.30, and then we just figure, I don't know what we think he does the rest of the day. He's talking to people in the next time zone, and, and then he's just moving across, and that's all he does all day. There's not this sense that he's actively engaged in what we're doing. So pray that prayer before the meeting, and then when you're at lunch with the guy, keep your eyes open. Keep your ears open. Expect. God, what what are you doing here? I hear what this guy is saying. Is there anything underneath there? Can I hear his heart through his words? Is there a question that needs to be asked? Is there a 
statement that needs to be made. We've said before, you don't have to quote Bible verses, you don't have to speak in King James English, but God speaks to us through us. Be available, God. How are you at work in this mundane situation? And then he says, be thankful. That to me has a past orientation. So then you get back in the car before you turn on the radio, 30 or 45 seconds. Thank him for what he did. And at first, it's going to feel like your mom telling you to write a thank you note to your aunt for the sweater. It's, it's going to feel forced and you're going to need the thesaurus to try to find an adjective because you've already used beautiful earlier. It's fine. It can be three sentences just like the thank you note. You can even use the same words. It will be mechanical at first, but what it will do is it will force you to look back and see God's hand. And all of these things feed each other. If you go, if you pray beforehand, future orientation, then in the present, you're looking, and then looking backward, past orientation, you're thinking, all of that feeds itself of saying, God is active. And over the course of the next two weeks, if you'll do that faithfully, if with the stuff you've got going on, if you will intentionally pray before, if you'll intentionally keep your eyes open during, and then if you'll intentionally thank afterwards, it will change everything about what you're doing. You might still hate your job. It, all of those things, the circumstances might be the same, but you'll see them from a completely different perspective because you'll see God at work through you, in, around you. It's exciting. So I'd encourage you to do that for the next two weeks. Devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Then he says this. He goes on to say, here's what you can pray about. Pray for us. That's Paul and Timothy also. That God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. We've said before, Paul's deal is to be an apostle, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. For us at Stonebridge, we use deal as shorthand for God's will for your life or his plan for your life or his dream or his purpose. Um, the, the Bible verse that we use is Ephesians 2.10, that God has created good works in advance for all of us to walk, to walk in. And we shorthand all that to your deal. And all of us have one. Everybody has a deal that's perfectly suited to who they are, according to Psalm 139, how God formed you and made you and knit you together. As he's doing that character-wise, he's also doing this lifestyle-wise. And those two things, they fit. And so what we want to do is discern what that deal is and then start walking in it. And you see Paul here. He's saying, pray that a door would be open. Pray that I have an opportunity to do my deal. Remember, he's in jail at the time. Pretty difficult to move around to new territory and preach the gospel to the Gentiles when you're sitting in jail. But notice he doesn't pray for his circumstances to be changed. Now, he might, as soon as he wrote the last word, grace be with you, he might have started praying for his circumstances. I don't know. I don't, fine. Pray for your circumstances to be changed. That's not the thing for me. The thing for me is that what he's saying to these guys is, pray that I would make the most of the situation that I'm in. Rather than wishing, rather than hoping, rather than delaying, well, I'll, I'll do that when, or making excuses. Well, God, you know I can't really because I'm, rather than doing any of that, he says, pray that there'd be a door open. Pray that God would give me a chance to do my thing even as I'm stuck in jail. That's the attitude for us. Absolutely, if you don't like your circumstances, ask God to change them. But until he does, make the most of, of that. what we talked about earlier. You've got to play the hand you've been dealt. Until he gives you new cards, those are the ones you've got. So you can gripe about it or you can play them. And my take, take or leave it, is he probably ain't going to give you new cards until you learn how to play the ones you've got. That's how it works. He's working on our character 
first. We said last week, the grass might be greener on the other side, but you're not. It's the same. You killed the grass on this side, you're going to kill the grass on the other side too until whatever's in your heart changes. You're the same regardless of the circumstances. You get that. He says, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Paul is saying, pray that I do my deal well. Maybe it almost seems silly to us. He has this massive track record. All this fruit, all of these different places where he's been. People who've come to the Lord. Churches that he started. And he's saying, pray that I do this well. That I could do my deal. That I could preach clearly. That I could do my deal well. And we've said this also before. Most of us know our areas of weakness. And we're pretty quick to recognize our need for God and other people in our areas of weakness. We, tend, we, we know uh, this is an area of temptation for me. Or this is something I don't do very well. So we're pretty uh, humble in terms of being dependent upon the Lord. That's what I mean by humble. Dependent upon the Lord in those situations. What's difficult for a lot of us is when we're operating in an area of strength. It's pretty easy to forget that we need the Lord at those points because we're good at it. And you know the things that you're good at. You know what people come to you and ask you to do. You know where you've been successful. You know where you've seen fruit in your life. You know what you're good at. You know where your sweet spot is. And when you're operating in that, it's very easy to forget that you need the Lord. And so this thing, this gift that he's given you, that if it's done in the Spirit, is wonderful. It's pretty easy to shift over and begin to do it in the flesh. Your strengths in your flesh will create way more havoc than your weaknesses ever will. Because our strengths in the flesh, we don't recognize them for that. We think we're still doing good stuff. We don't realize that our, it's, it's in our flesh. And so by definition, it's all going to burn. I think the enemy, for a, it's just a subtle twist. And it's the, the solution is you can't remove the strength. It's who God made you to be. It's not removing your strengths. It's recognizing when am I tempted to move from spirit to flesh and say, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. We've, again, I told you all this example several weeks ago. I'm a responsibility guy. That's one of my strengths. And in the spirit, it's wonderful. I'm dependable. I'm loyal. I've, you give it to me and I've got it. In my flesh, it's terrible. It causes me to micromanage, to take on responsibility that's not mine. I feel like i got to hold everything together. Jesus holds everything together. The goal for me is not to become irresponsible. The goal for me is to recognize, when am I tempted to move from spirit to flesh? And the same thing is true for all of you. You know these things. You know the strengths that you have, the gifts God has given you. And you know when you're tempted to do it on your own. That's the warning sign doesn't mean you don't do it. It means you make a choice to do it in the Spirit versus in your flesh. Then he moves on. He begins to talk about... Oh, and let me say this first, and then I'll move on. All of us. The Great Commission was given to everybody. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We're all supposed to make disciples. And doing your deal is your contribution to the Great Commission. That's how you make disciples in general. It's by doing your deal. It's it's the way you contribute to this worldwide thing that God is doing. And so I think the question that we all do need to ask is, am I proclaiming the gospel clearly through what I do and through what I say? Does my lifestyle and what I say, does it muddy the waters or does it make it clearer? For some of you, your nightmare scenario is tomorrow at lunch, your coworker looks across the table and says, yeah, I was in church yesterday, and the guy started talking about the gospel and the good news. What is that? And you're going, blah, 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 blah. I, you don't know. 
You don't, you don't have no answer for that. Then learn it. John 3.16, you know that. God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him won't die, but will live forever. That's the good news. We all need to be comfortable talking about that, talking about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how we connect to Jesus through faith. We want to get, again, you don't have to use King James English. You don't have to quote Bible verses. Most likely the person who's asking you the question doesn't know the Bible verses anyway. So it's fine. You just need to be able to communicate the good news clearly. You might need to practice. It might feel weird, but at least go over it in your head. If somebody asked me that question, could I answer them? If you can't get past the first few sentences, if you're using words that you don't know what they mean, if you start talking about vicarious atonement, and if you're using these words that you've heard that don't mean anything, it it's not helpful. Don't do that. What do you know? And then obviously your lifestyle. This doves in, this is no slam on anybody, but people have asked, and I thought about this this morning. A lot of people have asked me about the whole Eddie Long new birth thing, and this is my... Two seconds on that. If you don't know what's going on there, Google his name, and you'll find out what's going on there pretty quick. It's everywhere. Their church, New Birth, is one of the, I would say, five most prominent churches in the United States. And it's one of the probably top two, maybe three, in terms of the African-American church in the United States. It's a big deal what's happening over there. And he was a national figure. And I don't know if he did it or not. I think there's probably five people who know if he did, him and the four guys who've made these accusations. The thing is, it's almost impossible to prove a negative. Prove to me that you didn't go to Kroger yesterday. How, how do you do that? And that's the situation that he's found himself in. Whether I, and we can parse his statements and say, well, if he was really didn't do anything, he would have been more vehement. In his, I don't know what he, I don't know. He's got a lot of people telling him what to do. I have no idea what, again, and I don't, I don't know. I make no judgment on whether he did or did not do anything. All I know is to try to prove a negative is just about impossible. So for us, to me, one thing that we can learn from that is don't put yourself in a position where you're going to have to try to prove a negative. Be wise. If you're married, be smart. If you're a married man, I can't think of too many reasons why you need to be alone with another woman who's not your wife. If you're a married woman, I can't think of too many reasons why you need to be alone with a man who's not your husband. If you talk about, well, at work and all these things, figure it out. If you're constantly having to put yourself in those positions, you might need to find another job. It's not worth it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. So I would just say, where, don't put yourself in those positions as much as it depends on you. Anybody can make an accusation. There's nothing we can do about that. At that point, Jesus is our defense. He kept silent when people were accusing him. And we have to trust that he'll be our defense. But we don't want to put ourselves in a position where we're trying to defend a negative. Anything like that. I would say an another thing. People have said, well, if these guys acted biblically, if they were Christians, they would, I don't know. And you don't know. We don't know if they went to him first. We don't know if two or three of them then went to him. We don't know if they went to the church. We don't know any of that. And so I think to make it, are they going after money? I don't know. I'm sure they're asking for some. None of that to me, we, we can't get into that because we don't know. We don't know what steps these guys took to try to rectify the situation, if they took any, one way or the other. And then ultimately, I would say we don't have to, we don't need to be nervous. He was a very prominent man in a very prominent church. Jesus says very clearly, I build the church. 
and the gates of hell won't prevail. And we don't have to worry. We don't preach Eddie Long, and we don't we preach Jesus. And so if they're that's it for us. One of the controversies is apparently in 2004, he was very adamant in his opposition to homosexual marriage. If it turns out that he's done the things that he's done, that suddenly does not make homosexual marriage okay. It wasn't wrong because Eddie Long said it was wrong. It's wrong because the Bible says it's wrong. And that's what we preach. We preach Jesus and we preach this. Our authority comes from him, not from our own moral constitution. Some of you need to hear this. You feel like because of what you've done in the past, you don't have any business speaking truth to someone else. Well, if they only knew what I did, then they w- if the only reason they're listening to you is because of what you've done, you've built your, your basis for authority is wrong. You're not telling people you don't lie because I don't lie. You say you don't lie because God says don't lie. And if you happen to lie, well, quit. But it doesn't mean that you can't tell anybody else that. If it turns out that whoever's on the spiritual platform, pedestal, has an affair, that doesn't make affairs okay. They're not wrong because the guy on the spiritual platform didn't have one. They're wrong because God said they're wrong. You get that. So we don't need to wring our hands and bite our fingernails and sweat and think this is going to be the demise of the church because it's not. Jesus builds it. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And I don't know how this fits in. I think it's in Peter. Judgment begins with the house of God. He cleans us up. Hypocrisy is a killer. I don't know whether how any of that plays in. But for all of us, if you're saying, I'm in, I'm following Jesus. He's my Lord. He directs my life. If you have this big skeleton in your closet, the door's going to be opened up. Because judgment begins, not because... God's trying to humiliate anybody or punish anybody. But judgment begins with us. He cleans us up. So just that's not to scare anybody. That's just my two cents on where all that is. And we want to make sure that by our lifestyle and by our words, we're proclaiming the gospel clearly, that we're not doing anything that muddies the waters. People are going to say what they're going to say. They're going to draw the conclusions that they draw. They can acute. There's nothing we can do about that. People can interpret your motives in a lot of different ways. You're not responsible for that. What you're responsible for is my behavior, my actions. Your behavior, your actions. By your words and by your lifestyle, are you making things clear who Jesus is, what it means to follow him, or are you muddying the waters? You get that. Now, how we relate to outsiders, that kind of ties in. Three things. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Be wise. Make the most. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. This idea of being wise toward how you act toward outsiders, a more literal way of saying that would would say walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Wisdom, uh, it's not academic knowledge. It's more like common sense, but it's not common sense because it's a gift from God. So it's kind of supernatural common sense. It's practical. How do I live life? And Paul is saying be wise in how you live or walk towards outsiders. And one of the easiest, most practical things you can do is learn how to listen. The number of people who are going to see professional counselors and therapists would plummet if friends learned how to listen to friends. 
if we could truly begin to engage one another on a heart level, which begins with listening. And you know how to do this. All of you have done these practical listening things. You, you establish a, a, a connection with someone. It's a heart connection. If it's artificial, it doesn't work. You look, we say this all the time. You're looking for people you can be transparent and vulnerable with. You ask good questions. Never ask a question you're not willing to answer. That creates an, an, an inequity in the relationship. You're up here. You're the therapist. And they're down here. They're the patient. That's not friends. If they need a counselor, send them to a counselor. If they need a friend, be their friend. And don't ask anything you're not willing to answer. If I'm asking you to be more transparent than I'm willing to be, you're asking you to be more vulnerable than I'm willing to be, then there's something there in our relationship. And ultimately, it's going to sour. It's not going to be a true friendship because we're not equally yoked in that. So I would encourage, ask questions. And then, you know, reflect back what people say. You know how to do that. For some of us, when someone's talking to us, we're thinking about the advice we want to give, the story that relates to how we went through the same thing or how we went through a worse thing, and so their thing really isn't that bad, and we're going to tell them that because we think that's going to make them feel better, but really it's just going to make us feel better about ourselves. And, you know, we're comparing scars, and yours is only two inches and mine's four. So, you know, we do all that. Here's the Bible verse that I want to quote you. Don't. Just listen. Be attentive to what they're saying. And listen beneath the words. You can do that too. Listen to what they're saying from their heart. Not just the words that are coming out of their mouth, but what they're saying from their heart. And then ask them. This is what I heard. Is that, is that what you're saying? They'll tell you if you're right or you're wrong. You don't have to give them a prescription. A lot of times, most people live in their heads. We, uh, a few weeks ago, when we were looking at this whole idea of friendship. I think we said, what was it? 40% of the people in the United States don't have anyone they would consider a good friend. It was something like that. Most people spend all their time up here. And if you'll be their friend, what you're, the, the gift you're giving them is an outside perspective. You don't even have to be that smart. It's just because you're not in their head, which is an echo chamber. Just being outside, listening to them and saying, this is what I hear. Then they hear what they're saying and they'll realize if it's crazy. Just like you realize it's crazy. When somebody says, well, what, this is what I heard. And you're like, that's when the light comes on for most of us. We know how to live for the most part. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within you. He's trying to guide you and direct you, but sometimes it all just gets muddled up in here. What's me? What's God? What's the devil? What's my mother? What, you know, all that stuff is in here. And sometimes just having someone who's out here who can say, this is what I heard, it all becomes clear. And you can move ahead. Learn how to be, a, to me, that's insiders or outsiders. Paul's talking specifically specifically about outsiders here. But he's saying, be wise. And I think the easiest way to be wise is to learn how to listen. Then you'll know how to treat people, what's going on with them. He also says, make the most of every opportunity. The old translations say, redeem the time. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Do you, again, kind of tying back into last week. For some of us, we waste the time because we don't like the time that we're in. We don't like our circumstances. We don't like our jobs or whatever it is. And so we're just, we're biding our time. And what we're saying is, well, when God moves me into fill in the blank, then I will fill in the blank. Jim Elliott's a famous missionary. Um, one of the things that he said that's always stuck with me, wherever you are, be all there. Can you say that? Wherever you are, are you all there? 
Are you waiting to get somewhere else? We have people all the time ask us to support them who are going on long-term mission projects, a year or more. And one of the first things I do is look at their life. If you're not living like a missionary here, there's nothing about being somewhere else that's going to change that. I was looking at Jason and Felicia Winkle, our missionaries of ours in Southeast Asia. And they used to live down the street from us. And when they were ready to go, we had no problem as a family and as a church writing them a check. Because we saw how they lived on Hope Street. They worked, he worked with homeless people when he was here. He wasn't saying, when I get where I go, then I'm going to start doing this. He worked with international students when he was here. So it wasn't, he wasn't saying, well, when I get there, then I will. All of the things that he said he was going to do, they were doing here. They lived in community here. So we weren't concerned about whether they were going to start doing that there. We can all kind of believe this lie that if our circumstances were different, then we would be different. It's not true. You are who you are until God changes that. So my question to you, whether you like your circumstances or not, are you fully there? Are you redeeming the time? Are you making the most of every opportunity? Or are you saying, I'm going to be more loving when God moves me into a new position. I'm going to be more submissive to my boss when he's not a jerk. Whatever it is, I'm going to reach out to my neighbors when they're not the ones who I have now. That's what we do. It doesn't, that's not playing the hand that you've been dealt. It's not making the most of every opportunity for sure. It keeps all of us on the sidelines and it keeps God from engaging in our lives, engaging us in our life and engaging others through us who are connected to us based on our current circumstances. When your circumstances change, your set of relationships will change. So what did you do with the set you have now? Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. This is Matthew 12. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. He's talking to the Pharisees here, religious leaders of his day. How can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Did you hear that? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. The evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word that they've spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. I don't know if this is true. I heard guys speak about 6,000 words a day and girls close to 8,900. Can you imagine being accountable for all of that? Mm-hmm. So I think this idea of your words being full of grace and seasoned with salt. I think what Paul is saying is if you're going to say something, then say something worth saying. Don't just fill up the space. If you've got, it does, again, it doesn't mean you have to quote Bible verses all the time or always be talking about Jesus. But does your conversation, does it, does it build people up? Does it edify? Is it a neutral or is it a negative? Does it tear down? Think about it. Think of all the words you said on Saturday. When you were at the soccer field, when you were at the birthday party, when you were out to dinner, whatever it was that you did yesterday. Is any of it worth repeating? Is anybody better because of those interactions? Yes or no? 
for some of us who maybe take our words flippantly. We don't put a lot of thought into what we say. We just figure it'll be okay once it gets out there. Maybe for the next week, before you go to bed, before you fall asleep, try to run back through. You don't have to run through every word. Run through every interaction. Was there anything in there that I could say was full of grace? Was there anything in there that was seasoned with salt? Did I say anything in this interaction that made that person better for having interacted with me? Did I encourage them in some way? Did I bless them in some way? And if the answer is repeatedly no, and this is the hard part, I love you, this is the hard part, it's a reflection of your heart. Because it's out of the overflow of the heart our mouth speaks. Words are fruit that come from the soil of our heart. If you fly off the handle in traffic, it's not the traffic's fault. It's your fault. It's your heart. There are people who go through traffic and they don't get angry. I'm married to one of them. Never does. If you tend to cut people down, you're overly sarcastic. Because of a wound in your own heart. You're trying to build yourself up by knocking them down. You say you're just trying to be funny. Or it's just too... It's not. We need to start here. Ask the Lord to change our hearts and then our words will change. If we start with trying to change our words, again, we've got things backwards. Start with your heart. God, the reason I'm flying off the handle in traffic is because I'm not patient. So make me patient. Then you'll realize that... It's not boiling in there anymore. You're not about to erupt. God, the reason I'm sarcastic is because I'm trying to figure out my place in this pecking order of people. And so I'm trying to knock down the couple of guys who I see are ahead of me so I can jump ahead of them. I want you to change my heart so I realize my identity is found in you, not in where I fit in this hierarchy. And I'm going to rest in that and I'll realize I'm not knocking people down as much because I don't need to anymore. I can build them up. It doesn't matter how low I go in the pecking order because my identity is secure in Christ. If you don't like what you say, start with your heart. Why do we do all this? So that we may know how to answer everyone, or maybe more accurately, so we will know how to answer each one. There's an individual component, personalized component to each of this. Read Luke 15. It's a great chapter. This is how God feels about the one who's lost, the one who's outside, the one who's alienated from him. He leaves the 99 sheep and he goes after this one who's wandered away. This lady has nine coins. She's lost one and when she finds it, she has a party because she's found this lost coin. He's this father who's scanning the horizon every day, waiting on this lost son, this rebellious son, to come home. And as soon as he sees him, he sprints to him. Just like he did for you. If you're a Christian, you were a lost sheep. You were a lost coin. You were a lost son. And he came after you personally, intentionally, individually after you. Oswald Chambers says, don't make an experience Don't make a principle out of your experience, excuse me. Don't make a principle out of your experience. Allow God to be as unique with others as he was with you. There's this picture of God. He he knows what it takes to reach you, and he's coming after you. And it's different from what it takes to reach you, and he's coming after you. 
And a lot of times he uses us to go after whoever it is he's pursuing. If you find yourself on the outside today, if you would say, I'm distant, I'm estranged, I'm alienated, I'm the guy you're talking about, hear me. You have a Father in heaven, and he does not have a lightning bolt in his hand. His desire is that you would turn around. I promise he's faster than you. If you start running, he'll meet you. And it won't be with a whip. It'll be with an embrace. Welcome home. Let's pray. God, I do thank you that you're a, you're a good father and you have pursued each person in this room. Whether we've said yes or not, you have pursued us. And God, my prayer for any here this morning who feel distant, who feel estranged, who feel alienated, maybe they've been Christians but for whatever reason, they've drifted away, maybe it's a sin issue or an apathy, whatever. Maybe it's someone who's never said yes. That God, as we take communion and as we spend time in worship, what they would hear is an invitation from their father saying, come home. I've got a robe, I've got a ring, and I've got a meal. And it's all prepared for you. God, for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that we would proclaim the gospel clearly as we should, and clearly as it should be proclaimed through our words and through our lifestyle, God, that you would use us to make this invitation to others. And God, we know that that means you being involved in the dailiness of our life. So we want to invite you to do that, God. Those of us maybe who check you off in the morning and then go about our day, I pray over the next couple of weeks that you would remind us of your desire to get involved and that we would ask you to do that of being devoted to prayer, being watchful, and being thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're going to take communion. Uh, the way we, if you're helping.